It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. On Sunday, Vice President Kamala Harris departed for a two-day trip to Mexico and Guatemala. This visit comes four months after the vice president was tasked with leading the effort to solve the problems at the border to uncover the root causes of the border crisis. She's set to hold bilateral meetings with the Guatemalan president and the Mexican president where she will discuss economic opportunities, law enforcement cooperation, and security issues. Meanwhile, President Biden will host NATO Secretary General Stoltenberg at the White House ahead of the June 4th NATO summit in Brussels. According to the White House Press Secretary, Biden and Stoltenberg will discuss issues with the NATO agenda, including reinforcing the transatlantic security uh, in face of challenges from Russia and China. For this and more, we'll bring in all our, our all-star panel, co-founder of The Dispatch and host of The Remnant podcast, Jonah Goldberg. Democratic strategist and syndicated talk radio host Leslie Marshall and Republican strategist and former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown, Colin Reed. Well, listen, this trip to Guatemala and Mexico obviously has significance. It's the first foreign trip um, that the vice president is making. Uh, and it is also, Jonah, you know, notable that She's talking about the root causes of the border crisis, but hasn't really visited the border states. A lot of Republicans make a big deal out of that. But the border issue still very hot and heavy down there in those states. Yeah, uh, this is, you know, this is a pristine example of how uh, you don't get the reality you want. You get the reality that fate gives you. And this was not a key agenda item when Biden got elected. It's not something he talked about that much when he campaigned other than to sort of do the ritualistic denouncing Trump's actions at the border. And it's a hot mess. And he should actually know what a pickle he's put his vice president in because his old boss, Barack Obama, did the same thing to him when he was vice president. And he didn't make that much progress on this problem either. I do philosophically agree with the administration that if you can make these Central American company countries more prosperous, and safer, um, it would solve a lot of this problem. That's just that's just a very, very heavy lift. And I haven't seen anything from the administration that suggests they've got a real handle on it other than just sort of trying to run out the clock. Leslie, uh, you know, Senator Harris, when she was campaigning for president, um, tweeted out that uh, she was standing in solidarity with refugees and immigrants who are, in her words, being targeted by the Trump administration, and they should be allowed uh, to come in the country. It's not who we are. Now, uh, 
today in Guatemala, she is saying, quote, do not come to the United States. Uh, we'll continue to enforce our laws, secure our border. We, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. Um, obviously, different messages in those times. It depends which uh, people she's talking about when she's uh, in a nation like Guatemala and she's saying to the people, please don't leave here. It's different than people that are trapped in Mexico or standing at our border. I mean, one thing I would have to say that I uh, two things I agree with Jonah on um, is increasing economic opportunities in places like Guatemala and Mexico certainly are, are necessary. And two, that this is something that administrations right or left have kicked down uh, the road like a can, sadly, and uh, it becomes a problem and continues to be a problem uh, for every administration. And it will until you have some cooperation. We also have to look at sometimes when we put our foot in it, though. I mean, you know, we we arrested the former <laughs> Mexican defense minister and then, you know, Department of Justice Attorney General at the time, Bill Barr, was like, oh, my bad, you know, back up on that. You know, for about two years, we've really had some problematic relationships specifically with Mexico uh, regarding this. Mexico and Guatemala and a lot of these countries also have a terrible relationship within their own country because they're, you know, they're more afraid of the cartel, the military and the uh, politicians than the cartels are of them. Um, So this is a, a multifaceted problem. It takes a multifaceted approach. And one thing I think that we have to do is we have to look at our broken asylum system. And that's something that takes more than just uh, a vice president going to meet with these countries uh, that takes bipartisan support uh, in D.C., in, in Congress, and, you know, just even piece by piece passing legislation that, that, that can get us, uh, you know, on the path to improving the situation. Because, quite frankly, immigration is a mess. And one of the reasons for it is our broken asylum system. I mean, you know, people people don't realize that, you know, you 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 have to come here to do that. You can't. We don't have the opportunity in these countries to uh, apply for what they're coming to the border to apply for. And so, a lot of these people are just like lemmings until some policies change, not only within their borders but within our own borders as well. Right. And I guess, Colin, the Republican criticism is that they were sort of like um, a bug zapper in the backyard, in that you attracted all of these folks by changing the policy or at least forecasting that you were going to. Yeah, Brett. And if there's any truth to the rumors that Joe Biden and his team harbor any sort of ill will toward Vice President Harris based on her treatment of him during the primary campaign, uh, the list of issues that he's put on her plate uh, would bear that out because between the border crisis and the COVID relief early on and now voting and election reform, he's really passing the hot potatoes to her. And uh, as vice president, she's responsible for carrying out the, the, the orders of the administration, uh, which, which thus far have been, have been scant. But I think the bigger issue uh, for, for Vice President Harris is politically her stock has dipped uh, since she became vice president. And many people see her uh, as perhaps the next in line uh, should President Biden not run for uh, election again in 2024 or in 2028. It makes sense. The vice president is naturally uh, the heir apparent. But, but here's the issue. This crisis isn't going to wait till then. Uh, it's bedeviled administrations left, right, and center for the last four decades. And so far early on, uh, all the actions of this administration toward the border have involved wasting time arguing whether or not it is a crisis. It is indeed a crisis. And it's a crisis that's only getting worse. It's been exacerbated by the economic disparity in Central and Southern America, uh, and, and which has gotten worse with the pandemic. And we need to send a message to the world that uh, our, our Southern border 
we need to be able to control it. It can't just be a welcome mat for all who come here uh, uncontrollably. We need to be able to control who comes in, who goes out, and that has real uh, consequences for our e economy and our national security. And so far, uh, the idea that Senator or Vice President Harris would separate the two, whether it be for political reasons or others, separate the idea of the underlying causes from the border, well, they're inextricably linked and they need to be uh, tackled part and parcel, not separated out just to avoid getting stuck with a hot potato on your plate. Yeah, and there's not a lot of prospect of anything bipartisan happening in Congress, uh, in the, at least in the short term, uh, for immigration. A lot of other things on the plate, and we'll talk about that in a second. Meantime, uh, Jonah, the president, getting ready for this trip overseas to meet with Russian pres President Vladimir Putin in Geneva, a summit. We're just trying to get the details. We don't know if it's going to be one-on-one -on -one with staff, how, how it's all going to shape up. But as this is happening, we have obviously the computer, the hacks, the ransomware attacks, the the hacks on different uh, companies and systems that are tied at least a little bit to uh, geography in Russia. Then you have the decision by the administration uh, to block uh, a Russian pipeline. Um, the Ukrainian uh, president, uh, Zelensky, said he learned through the press um, that they decided to stop blocking that Russian pipeline in essence uh, and in an effort to kind of give a hat tip to Germany. Long story short, uh, the international reaction to this is really interesting when you think about sitting down with the guy who probably doesn't harbor any great will towards you. Yeah. I mean, I, the one of the problems with, trying to figure out what the Biden administration's actual foreign policy is beyond the sort of boilerplate stuff that it's, you know, it's better to be wrong in a big group than to be right alone. Um, and the, the, the fondness that Biden clearly has for a lot of the pageantry of foreign policy, you know, he's, he was around during that, the cold war and these, these big international summits were once like the biggest deal in, in, in politics. And I think he likes some of that stuff. But there's also just a sort of a problem of not knowing what's going on behind the scenes. If if trading away Nord Stream 2 um, was a concession that got him something that we don't know about yet, that's one thing. If if it wasn't, I, I don't know what the explanation for it is. Similarly, you know, I, I keep going back and thinking about shortly after 9-11, there was this famous story about how Joe Biden assembled his whole staff. I think he was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time and said, you know, what we need to do. We need to send Iran $150 million right now just to show them that we don't think they're our enemy right now because we don't need that. And his staff, they all kind of stared at their shoes for a little bit and just hoped he would move off that idea. And he did. And everything you know, moved on. But Biden has always had, this is why Bob Gates said that he was wrong on almost every single foreign policy issue throughout his career. He's always had some strange ideas about foreign policy. And you can never know whether or not that's actually what's what's driving this stuff. I personally think that there's no good reason, given the public facts, for Joe Biden to be sitting down one on one with Vladimir Putin. It rewards Putin. It gives Putin something he desperately wants. It elevates the status of Russia um, and of Putin's regime at a time when he should be more isolated. And if there's something behind the scenes that we're getting out of this, great. But I'd just love to know what it is, because it's very it's very difficult to defend on the merits of what we see right now. It just seems like they want to have a summit because summits are cool and it's fun to be 
And talking is always better than non-talking, which is just not necessarily the case. Yeah. Leslie, I guess for all the criticism that President Trump took and the Trump administration took uh, for you know, the actions of talking with Putin and uh, kind of all the coverage of the, the Mueller investigation uh, on policy issues, it really doesn't seem like the Biden administration is tougher on policy than on Russia than the Trump administration was. I would have to agree so far with you on that. I mean, you know, we, we had President Biden calling uh, Putin a murderer, right? Now we're going to sit down and, you know, there's going to be at least visually a kumbaya moment. Um, but what are we doing with Russia? One of the concerns that I have, and to me, this isn't Democrat or Republican, this is American, is, you know, Russia and China have gotten cozier. Um, they've gotten cozier, not just during the Trump administration, but during, uh, you know, uh, this current administration. Um, I just want to say that Nord Stream 2, in my opinion, is all about improving relations with Germany. But a lot of people would say, OK, Germany got something out of it. What, we, what did we get out of it? You know, here, here's the problem that we have, I think, right now, not, not just as a nation, but any nation in the world, is that sometimes we need our enemies. So let, let, let's just look at China. And I know people don't like to say China is an enemy. But when, when you look at, you know, COVID, when you look at the lack of transparency, which is an understatement, the inability to do a proper investigation into that lab in Wuhan, uh, when you look at the Uyghurs and other human rights abuses, you know, you know, they're our enemy and we have to take a stand. But sadly, when you look at trade, sadly, when you look at the deficit in import and exports, uh, sadly, right now, it would seem that we need them more than they need us. And uh, China has made a huge priority and uh, their citizens fall in line like lemmings, not to say lemmings again, but um, to make that happen, to make them a, a world dominant force uh, when it comes to uh, production. And so it's a very difficult situation for any president to um, balance uh, this. But what scares me, quite frankly, is all the while we're figuring out how do we stay tough on them and have our actions uh, match our wording and our rhetoric when we're on the campaign trail. Uh, what are we doing about the strengthening relationship between China and Russia in the meantime? Because that certainly uh, improved in those countries and continues to and has escalated, if anything. Yeah. Colin? Yeah, I mean, to Jonah's point, the, the only thing we've really seen from uh, the Biden administration thus far in foreign policy is the decision to uh, withdraw from Afghanistan, of course, a policy that was put in place by his predecessor and one that wouldn't have been possible without uh, President Trump kind of giving him the political cover to do it within his own party. So I do think that the, the eyes, the, the big centerpiece of this is going to be the June 16th meeting with Putin. Uh, Joe Biden is someone who has always fancied himself as a foreign policy guru, uh, whether it's his decades in the Foreign Senate Foreign Relations Committee or eight years as Barack Obama's vice president. But I think he's going to find that it's a little bit different when you're the one in charge. I mean, being one of 100 senators uh, carries with it a certain responsibility, but nowhere near what he's going to be dealing with uh, when he goes and sits, sits down with Putin. And then I also think that Americans are, are, are beginning to feel the effects of uh, what happens when these foreign actors uh, do start interfering, uh, not only uh, abroad, but also at home. And whether it be the colonial pipeline uh, ransomware attack that led to gas shortages and sky high gas prices. Uh, so the, the, the Biden foreign policy agenda, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of blanks to be filled in. And I think we're going to start to see it. And uh, in the meantime, he's leaving behind a, a whole lot of uh, political problems at home. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. 
Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You know, in the latest Fox poll, uh, border security and foreign policy are the places where where President Biden is upside down. Coronavirus handling the economy. He's doing very well and um, overall doing well in the polls. Uh, Jonah, as far as getting wins on a bipartisan front, it boy, it doesn't seem like it's heading down that road. We could see infrastructure turn around. But after this weekend, where Senator Manchin from West Virginia expressed his uh, displeasure with the voting uh, uh, bills, H.R. 1, S.S. 1, uh, and said that he's not going to bust up the filibuster, uh, does he become Senate Majority Leader Manchin? <laughs> or or, or crown regent yeah yeah <laughs> i mean um yeah i personally think that like as i began earlier with the immigration stuff that that the biden team basically came into office or certainly in the first 50 days or so convinced of a different political reality than the facts on the ground they weren't really ready to have control of the senate you know biden seemed to be preparing for you know, a presidency where he was going to be able to tell his base, look, I can't get this stuff done because Mitch McConnell runs the Senate. And then all of a sudden the Georgia runoff went the Democrats way. And then he allowed himself to get spun up. Partly part of it was the COVID, the first COVID relief package, which was popular, including with a big chunk of Republicans. And there was very little elected Republican pushback on it. And they seem to think that a piece of legislation that included just giving Americans large sums of cash free and clear was popular for reasons other than the fact that people like getting cash and that, that somehow the rest of their agenda would be equally popular. And then he gets these historians who come in and spin him up about how he can do a new New Deal or a new progressive era. And he starts investing in an agenda that would be plausible if he had a 60 seat majority not if he was scrambling to get 50 votes, which is the situation that he's in. You know, all the stuff that he really wants to do needs 60 votes, and he has a hard time finding 50 votes because of Manchin and Cinema. And, you know, and I think a lot of the left wing attacks on Manchin are not only just deeply unfair, they also miss the fact that Manchin is taking taking it for the team for a lot of other senators who don't want to vote on this stuff either, but exactly are, are in a much more precarious situation. Manchin State voted for Trump by 39 points. He I mean, can what do whatever are they he do? wants. They're yeah. going to primary him? I mean, he's, they're not going to, you can't, what do they want a Republican there? Because that would be the alternative. You're not going to get some left wing uh, candidate that's going to run against Manchin. He's, he's got years left too, but you're right. He is taking the, the blowtorch while senators, Mark Warner, Maggie Hassan, uh, Mark Kelly from Arizona, Kirsten Cinema. There's a few others that uh, are in the same boat, but they're not having to talk about it a lot. Yeah, because those attacks are actually good for Manchin in his home state. You know, they they help they help him prove his you know authenticity as this maverick Democrat who works in the middle and all that kind of stuff. And you're right, there is a the, the same activist groups that got AOC elected in New York. They're trying to f- come up with a primary campaign against Manchin, and their fundraising stuff says crazy things like, um, "Let's find the next AOC in West Virginia." <laughs> the next the next AOC in West Virginia is teaching 
a post-colonial poetry class at a state community college. There's, there's <laughs> that that person is not going to win in in West Virginia. And so it's it's a it's a very similar to the dynamic you get on the right with like rhinos who get people get very angry at these Republicans from more liberal states or districts who have to vote squishy to get reelected. Manchin has to hold his ground if it, if the Democrats are going to hold on to the seat and he gets zero gratitude for it. So it's it's kind of fun to watch. Yeah, Leslie, I'm sure it's not as fun to watch um, <laughs> for you, but it is amazing the the focus that that Manchin has received and. Um, Although he did say some things that that seemed to indicate some optimism about the negotiations on infrastructure. Another West Virginia senator, Shelley Moore Capito, in the middle of negotiations with President Biden. Who knew West Virginia would be this consequential in in our uh, lifetime of infrastructure and big bills? But uh, it is. And it seems like President Biden is in a negotiating mood. Uh, Perhaps it's because they looked at the numbers. (laughs) <laughs> I think, honestly, because infrastructure is another area where it's a win-win. I, I mean, Democrats or Republicans get to go home to their state if they're a senator or to the district of their House member and say, this is how many jobs are going to be created. And infrastructure is a, a job creator. And after what we've just been through in, in the past year, we certainly need, uh, you know, not just more jobs created, but we definitely need some hope and optimism. In addition, when you have so many Americans left and right hating Congress and the abysmal approval ratings of the uh, members uh, within it. So I I think this could be a win because infrastructure is, again, another issue that has been kicked uh, down the road repeatedly uh, by both Democratic and Republican leadership whether you're in the White House, the House, uh, or the Senate. I do want to say something on Joe Manchin, though. I have for a long time said that Joe Manchin's a Republican wearing a blue cape with a D on it. And, you know, you're always going to have that the the outlier within your party, uh, you know, w- that has a, like a Connor Lamb, for example, has more conservative districts, certainly than somebody like AOC. But you, but you have so much fragmentation within both parties because the Democrats have the progressive faction, the squad, right? But then the Republicans have, you know, those of us who, you know, uh, you know, bow down and worship Trump every day and the Liz Cheney's. So, I mean, Joe Manchin is uh, appreciating what John McCain did back in the day, which uh, Liz Cheney is appreciate, you know, uh, you know, being uh, confronted with now from within her own party. Uh, the attacks are brutal. I think it's disgusting to say he's racist because he's against this legislation. I would say he's selfish because he cares about more than his party and more than helping the uh, president uh, and what the the president campaigned on, uh, but certainly to keep himself uh, in his position as senator of West Virginia, looking at his political career, which most politicians do. Yeah. I want to end with this, and this is about COVID. You know, there is this sense as you get out and about um, that more of the country is getting out and about and feeling more comfortable as the vaccination rates go up, the COVID cases go down. Uh, But Colin, a new Gallup poll out says 71% of Democrats in the United States want healthy people to stay home as much as possible, even as the vaccinations go up and and the infections go down. In contrast, it's 87% of Republicans and 64% of independents say it's time for people to start living normally and um, getting out. Yeah, and those numbers would make more sense, Brett, if it were last year and Donald Trump was still in office and everything around COVID, uh, mask mandates or, or school shutdowns or what have you had become insanely politicized. You're seeing it now play out this week with the release of uh, Dr. Fauci's emails. But it, it shouldn't make those numbers don't make sense now that there's a, a Democrat in the White House. And, and by all accounts, 
Uh, Joe Biden deserves great credit for the, the rollout of the, of the vaccine, just as Donald Trump deserves credit uh, for getting the vaccine to market as fast as he did. Now, politically speaking, Joe Biden was elected, for lack of a better word, as a one-trick pony. He governed as the uh, antidote to Trump on the issue of COVID. And because the pandemic was playing such a large role in everyone's lives, and voters overwhelmingly, or by a slim margin, decided they didn't like the direction Donald Trump was taking, and they elected Joe Biden. What, what Joe Biden hasn't done yet proven politically, and this gets back to where we started this conversation, is where he goes next. Uh, we get it. He was elected to, to, to uh, deal with the COVID situation, but there's going to be many more uh, challenges to deal with, both on the economic front, the foreign policy front, and now we're going to see uh, what card he has left to play, because the really successful politicians and office holders are those that have multiple acts. And as I think as we come to the end of COVID, and we are at the end of COVID, uh, it's now incumbent on uh, all the all Joe Biden and his team, as well as every other uh, official in the country, to figure out what is the next act they want to play, because the American people are are done with COVID. It, the the world is reopening, America's reopening, and it's a good thing for all of us. Jonah, I, one thing Gallup does have is that eighty four percent of respondents are saying are more optimistic, saying things are heading in the right direction, um, and they are clearly. Yeah, I, I just. I think that a lot of people's brains were kind of, I mean, I don't mean to be too pejorative about this, but a lot of people's brains were kind of broken by the pandemic and that people have become, uh, they've, they've incorporated their views in the pandemic into their larger cultural and political identity in weird ways. Um, I think Republicans are right. Speaking as the broad demographic about, the need to open things up and get out more. But if you look at that Gallup poll, it also shows that a really shocking number of them refuse to ever get the vaccine, which is by my lights crazy. And then you have a, sort of an opposite number among Democrats who, even though they have the vaccine, still want people to be wearing masks. And, you know, I, I think it's really a shame how much the politics of the pandemic have been internalized into people's daily lives in all sorts of weird ways. And I think, I hope that as time goes on, both sides will largely just abandon that stuff because it's no longer relevant and it no longer has the cultural power it once did. But it's it's really shocking to me how, how anti-masking or pro-masking has become like, uh, you know, Catholic versus Protestant and the in 1600s Europe for a lot of people. And I just think yeah. it's crazy. And the other thing, last thing, Leslie, is that, you know, we heard from the White House that their their target for vaccinations was going after white kind of MAGA Trump supporters uh, by going and advertising during NASCAR and The Greatest Catch and all these different television shows. Um, well, it turns out, according to the CDC this week, that the biggest uh, communities that are not being vaccinated are black communities across the country. And so um, it's just interesting to see the different, how the country has been dealing with this. Overall, vaccinations, there's more than 300 million vaccinations, individual uh, shots in arms that have been delivered. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely, you know, been incredible. I, I mean, I saw a thing um, on, I think, Facebook with a doctor that said, you know, uh, smallpox got polio. No, because you got vaccinated. I, I mean, it just I, I would agree with Jonah and, you know, 
the people that I know in the medical community are just like, are you kidding me? There's nothing political about this. Roll up your sleeve. Uh, but Jonah, the reason many of us wear a mask if we're in a large group is because you can be asymptomatic and carrying it and not everybody around you is vaccinated. We certainly don't have tattoos on our forehead and I certainly hope it won't uh, come to that. The black community, though, yeah, there's very after- little evidence for that, just for the record. There's extremely little evidence for that. And the science doesn't really support it. It certainly doesn't support it outside. Well, also, you can still get COVID if you have the vaccine. You're just not going to die from it, most likely, or be very sick from it. But you certainly can still. I know two people that have been vaccinated, two vaccines, and then uh, they uh, did uh, a father and a daughter with my kids at school who uh, actually were infected by a family member, even though they were both vaccinated, not the daughter yet. She's having her second vaccine with my kids today, but he was uh, vaccinated twice. Uh, Brett, to your point about African-Americans, there's been, um, wow, just for, you know, well over a hundred years, a lack of trust by African-Americans of government. uh, And especially when it comes to, you know, uh, medical things like vaccines. And this goes back to medical experimentation on people uh, in their community. So it comes to a a lack of uh, trust. And certainly we need to get the message out to those communities that, you know, and I see it all over here in California, quite frankly, uh, uh, definitely an emphasis to target the African-American communities here um, to get those shots in arms in those communities and to help those individuals be less uh, suspicious of the process. Well, hopefully it's all heading in the right direction. Uh, Panel, thank you very much. Here is a bit of presidential trivia. On June 17th, 1885, the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York City as a gift from France to commemorate a century of friendship between the United States and France. The next year, President Grover Cleveland officially accepted the statue at the inauguration ceremony on behalf of the American people, promising that, quote, we will not forget that liberty has here made her home, nor shall her chosen altar be neglected. There you go. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Jonah, Leslie, and Colin, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.